You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, for episode 514 of this podcast. Today is December 10th, 2022, and in this episode, we're going to be talking through some various items related to, what else, Christian nationalism, so-called. There's a few articles I read and some material that I engaged with, otherwise some video and audio content this past week that I really want to touch on. Also, there was a long-form interview with a certain... Uh, you, you could say Christian worldview podcaster, uh, YouTube channel host. Uh, I watched just yesterday and was talking quite a lot back and forth with my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez. He's the one who sent it to me, this video featuring a Cameron Bertuzzi and his conversion to, in process, Catholicism. He sits down with Matt Frad at the Vatican. And uh, I want to talk about some of the things that are brought up in that conversation. It's it's a fairly long conversation. I'll include a link in the description for this podcast episode so you can check it out yourself. But first of all, before we get into those fun topics, Christian nationalism and Protestants going Roman Catholic, I had a very sweet message from a friend of mine, uh, who's also the wife of a friend of mine this past week. And she also messaged my wife, messaged both of us, wanting some recommendations for books for her husband for Christmas. And she says, hey, I'm thinking about buying him some books for Christmas. I know you read a lot. I know he likes your thoughts on things and I know he respects you and I know you know him. And so what would you recommend? What would you recommend for my husband as far as books that are encouraging or uplifting or inspiring or have to do with spiritual formation or history or being a good man or whatever, right? Whatever you would recommend, I would love to get some recommendations from you four books for my husband. And so I wrote out a list. It took me several days and I was thinking about it even when I wasn't writing out these titles. But I wanted to share that list with you in case you're trying to buy a book for someone you know. These might not be books that you would think of at first, but uh, now if I share these recommendations with you as well, uh, you might. You might check them out for yourself even because these are all really solid books and very interesting. The first, I would say, Legion versus Phalanx. Uh, these are not necessarily in order of you know, greatest to least, but just in no particular order. First one I would mention would be Legion versus Phalanx by a Mike Cole. This book has to do with when the Romans and the Greeks first encountered one another on the battlefield. How did that go? And why did Rome ultimately win out? Even though Greece had been so uh, dominant in its own space, not global world conquerors going out and uh, attacking everyone else, except in the case of Alexander the Great, although he was technically a Macedonian. He had a very Greek 
uh, fighting formation that he was very successful with against the Persians and others. But the Romans, they, on the other hand, they were very dominant. They went all over the world, uh, the known world at that point, as far as they could get. And they got very, very big. Their empire got very, very big and made a lasting contribution. And we still have a lot of Roman and Greek uh, I guess you could say heirlooms culturally, civilizationally here in the West, lots and lots that we can credit to the Greeks and the Romans, but they fought before Rome achieved supremacy and ultimately conquered Greece. They fought and Legion versus Phalanx is an exploration of the tactics and strategies and military hardware that went, went into that. And so it's, it's a very interesting uh, telling of the battles and explanation and unpacking of uh, not just what, but how. Carnage and Culture, next up by Victor Davis Hanson, similar uh, in its scope, but having to do with Western civilization more broadly throughout history. And it wasn't just the Greeks. It wasn't just the Romans. It wasn't just Spain. It wasn't just the English. Again and again, the Western way of making war or building society or cultivating the life of the mind and social institutions, and then by extension, military institutions and, again, tactics and strategy, have put Western civilization uh, in, in a dominant position again and again over and against non-Western civilizations. It doesn't mean that whenever the West goes up against a non-Western uh, opponent or enemy or rival, that the West wins every battle. But the West always wins the wars, and it's not for no reason. So that's a really excellent book by one of my favorite historians, Victor Davis Hanson. Really, a really, really interesting read that can go a lot of different directions in case you want to you know, explore more about a particular conflict or a particular period of history. Next up, uh, in a very different direction, it would seem, uh, but no less excellent, in fact, perhaps even more excellent than those previous two uh, titles, A Philosophical Inquiry into the Origin of Our Ideas of the Sublime and Beautiful by Edmund Burke. You know, not everything can be conflict and fighting and war and debate and argumentation. Sometimes you just really need to stop and smell the roses. and You need to think about aesthetics and what is beautiful and why is that a value to us? Beauty may be related to truth and it may be related to goodness, but it is definitely distinct. And philosophers for quite some time have recognized that we have different words for beauty than we do for truth and for goodness and not for no reason because beauty is a separate and distinct thing. But what makes a thing beautiful in our view? Edmund Burke writes the seminal work on this subject, and it is actually quite enjoyable. It's well-written even in and of itself, the way that the arguments are unwrapped, unfolded, presented, rolled out, formulated, however you want to put it. It is very graceful. It's very elegant and uh, not at all unmanly. I don't believe for a moment that in order to be a good man, you have to scoff at things that are beautiful. Everything you know, shouldn't be just ugly and rough. But there should be a glorious aesthetical appreciation that ties into and undergirds and supports your other pursuits and your other endeavors. It actually enhances your strength and it 
it, it is a good thing. It is a good thing to appreciate beauty in art, in music, in literature, etc., etc. Next up, Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville. This one, uh, just fascinating to read and to consider and to, I think, uh, look at our current circumstances through the lens of. And also, it's a, a great bridge between the founding fathers' generation of Americans and what happened with the Civil War. Alexis de Tocqueville traveling through what was uh, then the United States of America, not what is now, because not all of the territory that we now consider the U.S. uh, was actually a part of the United States at that time. But he traveled through the United States as it was at that time back in 1831, so 30 years prior to the Civil War, and also uh, a mere 60 years, uh, 50 years after the events of the American Revolution, the War for Independence, and he comments on it, he notates, and he observes the ways of relating and living and organizing and communicating and doing business and handling government, which are particular to the American Republic. And he writes as a Frenchman in contrast to and in comparison at many points with his own experience in the French Republic. And you, you really just you, you can't beat democracy in America when it comes to learning, for one, where we come from as a people, as Americans, and in some measure, actually to a great degree, how far we've fallen. And also, too, just generally, the quality of being observant and being able to describe what it is that you observe and convey and explain. De Tocqueville does a a masterful job And all the more is he an enjoyable person to read with his observations because he's not an American and he's not writing democracy in America primarily for the sake of an American audience. He's writing primarily for the sake of a French audience because he's a Frenchman and he's trying to take some of these observations back to France and help his own people, his own country, benefit his own people in his own country by saying we could learn a thing or two from the Americans, both good and you know, maybe sometimes not so good. Next up, The Ghost Map by Stephen Johnson. I won't spend a lot of time explaining the rest of these titles from here on, but this one talking about kind of the uh, beginnings of uh, the idea of germ theory and associating illness with the spread of what we now refer to as germs. And this is where more of an appreciation for why good hygiene is important to staying healthy and keeping disease and illness from spreading through a population. This is part of the story of how that comes to be. And it makes for a very interesting, interesting read. Uh, Destiny of the Republic, next up by Candace Millard. Candace Millard is also a really great historian, but she talks about one of the shortest termed uh, American presidents who actually didn't really want to be president. Andrew Garfield didn't really want to be president. He got up and he spoke on behalf of someone else for their candidacy at the Republican National Convention. But his speech was so rousing and he failed to mention the candidate's name as he was articulating these ideas and casting this vision. And then he culminated his speech at the RNC with a question of who do you want to be your president? And he was expecting... He was planning to next 
give the name of this other guy he was up there to promote and to hype up. And everybody was so taken with his vision that he was casting for the country moving forward that they all shouted out his name. And his response to this was, oh, no, 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 that's no, no, no. And basically, they they strong-armed him into running for president. Then he gets elected president. And then this deranged office uh, seeker shoots him. And actually, and I don't want to give too much away here, but but actually, it's not his getting shot that kills him. It is infection. Again, going back to the ghost map, it's not his getting shot that kills him. It's the infection. And there's a lot of uh, medical malpractice and again, going back to germ theory, there's a failure to recognize the importance of good hygiene when it comes to medical examination in particular. And that's actually what kills Andrew Garfield. But it, it's a very well-written, very well-written story, very much worth your time, and you should check it out. Uh, next up, The Lost City of Z by David Grand. This has been made into a movie. I think Amazon did a movie with the guy from Sons of Anarchy as the leading role uh, star a few years back and it didn't seem like it was very, very well received, but the book is excellent. You should definitely read the book. And this is the real life uh, story of a famous explorer. He was a contemporary of Theodore Roosevelt, a little bit of a rivalry going on uh, in some sense between him and uh, Roosevelt, but he goes into the uh, jungles of South America and the whole world is just hanging on every word coming out of their expedition. But he goes in after having been all over the world and traveling and expeditioning and exploring. He goes in with his son and his son's friend looking for the city of El Dorado. And they disappear and are never heard from again. And we're not quite sure what happened to them. But this is a fascinating, fascinating story. And it's a real life story. And, uh, and and really very, very gripping, very interesting. Next up, The River of Doubt, also about a expedition into uh, the jungles of South America. This one by Theodore Roosevelt. And it's a very sad story, actually. It's a very, very sad story. Uh, it's a sad conclusion to an otherwise larger-than-life character in Theodore Roosevelt. It's kind of like the last charge of Theodore Roosevelt, his going on this quest to chart the river of doubt, as it was known. And uh, I won't give too much away, but it is definitely worth a read. Also by Candace Millard, as I said, one of my favorite historians. Next up, Coolidge by Amity Schles, the biography of Silent Cal, Calvin Coolidge, small government, quiet man, Calvin Coolidge. He is an unsung hero of the 20th century. And of American presidents in general, he is a character I think we could use more politicians like, more public servants like, and yet his is a bit of a tragic story as well. I won't give away why that is, but you should definitely read Coolidge by Amity Schles. Next up, The Wizard and the Prophet by Charles C. Mann, another one of my favorite historians. The Wizard and the Prophet about William Vogt and Norman Borlaug, these two famous scientists, one who saw the problem of limited carrying capacity for the world's population. As the population is growing, we have less and less capacity to make food for all these people. How are we going to feed all these people? Well, on the one hand, you had Norman Borlaug saying, well, let's 
make it possible to make more food, to grow more food. Let's improve our agricultural output in these countries where people are living on starvation rations. On the other hand, you had William Vogt going around the world trying to convince countries to decrease their population. There's two ways you could do what needs to be done when you have more people and less food. You could either decrease the number of people so you've got more food relative people, or you could increase the supply of food so you've got more food relative people. And it's a fascinating story. It's a fascinating compare and contrast between these two men who were both going around to uh, developing countries and poorer countries and trying to make their pitch and what their legacy is. It's a very, very fascinating book, very well written. Next up, The Dichotomy of Leadership by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. This is a follow-up to Extreme Ownership, also an excellent read. But if I had to recommend only one or the other, I recommend this one in part because I love how they explain that they wrote their first book. and Some people got carried away with it in the business world and in their personal lives. They were too extreme in their ownership. And so, how, hey, ho, ho, let's, let's do a follow-up, guys. Sorry, we should have said a little bit more. Sometimes you can go too extreme on the extreme ownership, and we need to explain a little bit more about what we meant on some of these points. Really good book, very practical, going back and forth between Willink and Babin, talking about their experiences, their observations, being Navy SEALs, Navy SEAL commanders, Navy SEAL trainers, then working in Echelon Front and being business consultants, leadership consultants. Uh, that's a really, really good read, and I very much uh, recommend it. I highly recommend it. Next up, Victor Frankel, Man's Search for Meaning. This one by a Jewish psychologist who lived, lived through, survived, uh, made it on, out on the other end, uh, the Nazi persecution of Jews during World War II and prior to World War II. He comes out on the other end with a lot of observations about what the purpose of life is or what the meaning of life is or how we come to maybe different conclusions and what the result is of our coming to different conclusions about the purpose of life or the meaning of life. There's some really, really good stuff in this book. Not that it's all true or that it's all good, but there's a lot that is uh, very commendable and good food for thought in Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Next up, The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton. Yes, Chesterton was a Roman Catholic, and more on that in a minute, but he had some really great things to say and some really witty turns of phrase, not just what he came to in the way of conclusions, but how he articulates his conclusions, I think, is exemplary and highly entertaining as well as thought-provoking. The Everlasting Man, he talks quite a lot in uh, contrast to or in argumentation against the view that's being popularized by men like H.G. Wells, this very scientific, not just scientific, but scientific, where science is our God. It's you know the God of the secular modern age. He argues against that, I think, forcefully on many, many points from the Christian worldview. Yes, a Roman Catholic, and there's baggage there, but he doesn't delve into so much the Roman Catholic-specific type arguments. Uh, the Pope said so. This council said so. You know, the, the Roman Catholic Church insists on this. No, there's a lot of use of reason and good rhetoric and uh, some really great observations here in The Everlasting Man. And then finally, and I know this is probably an odd one to include in the mix, but A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis is my favorite C.S. Lewis 
book, and it's not long, but he writes this after the death of his wife. And they, they're, they're not married for all that long when she passes. She's a fan. She starts writing back and forth with him. She is a widow, but she really appreciates his work. And they strike up this conversation. He's a bachelor, you know, well into his life. And then they develop this beautiful friendship from a distance, corresponding back and forth. He ends up marrying her, and then she dies. And she she dies of an illness that it just can't be helped. And then he writes A Grief Observed, and he grapples with the pain of losing this woman that he loved and just the unfairness that it feels like and why, and all these questions of why. And it's very raw, and it's very real, but I think it's also a very beneficial work. And I think it's good to grapple with these things. It is beneficial to our souls to grapple with grief instead of dismissing it, instead of just getting angry, instead of denying that we have any kind of grief or that this or that person ever meant anything to us. It's good to grapple with the grief and to ask those questions in a way that actually wants them to be answered by God why, God, why did this happen? Or why is this your will that you would permit this to happen or you would orchestrate certain things to happen? Why? But actually listen, actually listen to what the answer is or be willing to be content with the answer being, my grace is sufficient for thee. So there you go. There's 14 titles, 14 titles. If you're looking for a gift idea for somebody, you know, somebody in your family or your friend's uh, circle, you're looking to get them a book or you're just looking to get a book for yourself to finish out the end of the year with, you can't go wrong with any of these 14 books and I recommend them to you accordingly. In some other news, more current events type material, I want to talk uh, just for a moment about an American sports writer who died suddenly after collapsing in his press box at the World Cup in Qatar. Now, there is a claim being made that he was killed. I don't know, right? I don't know that that is what actually happened. Uh, I don't know that he was assassinated. I don't know that he was murdered. Uh, I don't know quite what happened here. But we do have headlines prior to this, that he showed up with a rainbow shirt promoting LGBTQ um, propaganda in Qatar, the Muslim world, typically. Uh, Whatever might be happening privately behind closed doors as open secrets in many parts of the Muslim world, officially, sodomy, uh, homosexuality is a capital offense. You can be put to death if you are found to be a homosexual. Well, this journalist with CBS goes overseas, goes to Qatar, where that is the law, where that is the norm, where that is the value, and it's not secret. It's not apologized for. And he meets with trouble. He's told, you have to take that off. He's told, you got to put something else on. You can't come in wearing that. He makes a big fuss about it. Headlines are made all over the world about it. And then next thing you know, not too terribly long after, he is just suddenly dead. He's suddenly dead. Grant Wall, 
just suddenly collapses and dies. What's the reason? Well, if I may, I would mention, and I would encourage you to look into this, and I'm not going to fixate on it and dwell on it too, too much in this episode, but do a search for reporters and players and athletes and even sometimes, like in the case of the 11-year-old son of Rod Stewart, uh, children, family of famous people just suddenly collapsing with myocarditis, blood clots, being taken off the field or on live TV, seizing up and losing consciousness. What is that about? Are they all, uh, you know, suspected of having been uh, assassinated for wearing LGBTQ shirts or trying to get into stadiums in Qatar with uh, such attire? Surely not. Surely not. Is it possible that these things are related to a certain vaccine that was mandated and that was not sufficiently tested and that a lot of people refused to take, like myself, refused to take because it was concerning that this is going to mess with your mRNA. Uh, it's going to mess with your your body's ability to interpret genetic information and we don't know what the results of that will be. This could be poison. This could be toxic. This could be deadly. This could kill, actually. It could make us very, very ill, but it also could kill us to take this vaccine. No, no, thank you. Well, a lot of us said, hey, that's our concern. We were flagged. We were censored. We were penalized. We were uh, mocked. We were scoffed at. We were shouted at and cursed at and all the rest. But a lot of the folks who did take the vaccine seem to be having some you know, very alarming symptoms that actually bear out what myself and others uh, were pointing to. And I suspect that that is actually what happened with this reporter, Grant Wall. I don't know. It could be. It could be that he, you know, somebody uh, poisoned him because they were angry at his embarrassing the country of Qatar his support for the LGBTQ uh, agenda. It could be that, but I, I lean towards with all the other sudden collapsings and, uh, and, and health problems and deaths, I, I lean towards this actually being related to the COVID vaccine. Now, I, I watched a video. It was sent to me earlier this week by my cousin Brent in Montana, a video in which to get around YouTube uh, censorship strictures and whatnot, the term climate change was used everywhere you might otherwise say COVID vaccine. You know, the, uh, it looks like climate change just happened to this guy, right? He, he got the the climate change uh, vaccine, right? Like that that's what happened. It's just climate change happening all over the place here. And, and that is clever, but I maintain, I insist, uh, let's call it what it is. It's the COVID vaccine. And it does appear as though the COVID vaccine is killing people and it is making them very, very sick. And otherwise they would have been very healthy, but actually the much, much, much bigger threat, uh, existential threat actually to them was not COVID, but it is the COVID vaccine. The cure so-called supposedly, which was no cure at all is worse than the disease. And uh, actually, I, I think a lot of people, because they are so 
obsessed with climate change. It's become a cult. It's become a pseudo-religion. They actually would not be all that upset if this is just a culling of Earth's population. Going back to the Wizard and the Prophet, they're more like William Vogt. They're less like Norman Borlaug. And so they want to see a, a clear view of the mountains unobstructed by smog. So who cares if we ban the sale of internal combustion vehicles? Who cares if a whole lot of people are just suddenly unable to reproduce or they suddenly die as a result of COVID vaccination? Who cares, right? It's for the best. We're saving the planet thereby. That's at least how they've been brainwashed into reasoning. Uh, but this is, you know, this is the Heaven's Gate cult. This is some Jim Jones uh, stuff right here that has been going on in recent years. It is, it, it, it's a death cult. It is. And going back to our last episode, talking about the after-school Satan clubs in Ohio and across the U.S., the end is destruction. This is self-destructive. This is suicidal. Don't go along with it. And if you see somebody who's being lured or sucked in uh, by this way of viewing the world and viewing themselves and seeing life and God and uh, one another, please, please, please implore them. Don't. Don't, 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 don't. This is not true. It's a trap. Going more local, though, more close to home. Uh, I subscribe to the Billings Gazette. I don't know why I do that, except I know that the Billings Gazette is pretty much the biggest newspaper in Montana. So far as I know, anyway, it, it is the biggest newspaper for Eastern Montanans. Uh, you know, you've got Billings as the place to go if you need to do some shopping or get to an airport that is sizable or get some doctoring done, you will go to Billings for it. And it's the biggest city in Montana. And they have this newspaper, the Billings Gazette, which always leans left. Uh, go figure. But you've got story after story cropping up from the Billings Gazette, Montana News. And that's why actually I do subscribe to their email alerts because I want to you know stay a little bit up on what's going on in my home state of Montana, where I'm originally from, where we moved to Colorado from uh, back in 2019. Miles City Nursing Home closing the 11th one in Montana this year. And this seems to be, a, you know, again, I maybe, maybe I've seen 11 of these headlines come through uh, my uh, emails from the Billings Gazette. And that's why it seems like I'm seeing so much. But this article from Emily Schabacher, I think I'm saying her name right, reads uh, in part, another rural nursing home announced a voluntary closure on Tuesday, making 11 Montana facilities 16% of the state's nursing homes that have closed in 2022. Friendship Villa in Miles City is the eighth Lantis Enterprise property to close in the state and is home to 36 residents, according to Lantis Enterprise COO Wendy Solick. It's been one month since the last rural skilled nursing facility closed in Columbus. Quote, staffing is getting more and more challenging, Sulik said, adding that multiple nurses have resigned recently. The facility hasn't had a physical therapist on staff for some time either. In an effort to keep the facility open, the remaining staff worked around the clock to make ends meet. But when another RN resigned on Sunday, staff told Sulik that it would no longer be possible to keep operations going. And so here, you know, I, I want to tie this back into... If you will, think forward to the life choices that have been made by a lot of people when, for one, 
we have the average age of marriage in recent decades increasing by 10 years. So the average age at which young people got married was 20, and now it's 30. Uh, 30 for young men, 29 for young women. Also, too, the birth rate has never been lower. Also, too, might I mention again that testosterone levels are decreasing among men precipitously. That's a very dangerous thing. It's a very, very bad sign. Although James Cameron is uh, happy because he's just recently uh, in his conversations promoting Avatar 2. He's the director of Avatar 2. He's been working on it for a dozen years. He's just recently come out saying that testosterone is a toxin that needs to be purged from men's bodies. So there you go. He's, he's doubtless happy that men have less and less testosterone. But sperm counts are also dropping precipitously, 2.6% year over year in recent years. People are not even replacing themselves. They're not having enough kids to even maintain the current population level. And so then Chuck Schumer comes out, Democrat, Senate Majority Leader, comes out and says, we need illegal immigration. Um, My word's not his. He euphemizes it. But we need illegal immigration because Americans are not having kids the way that they're supposed to. Well, why aren't they having kids the way that they're supposed to? Because you're destroying the economy, because you are incentivizing irresponsibility and (laughs) uh, perpetual adolescence and an obsession with education as an end unto itself or pursuit of career as the primary means of self-actualization because you are disincentivizing young people when it comes to getting married to a member of the opposite sex and having children and raising those children. Yes, yes, we are having fewer babies in this country. But then, but then what happens when all of these young people who aren't getting married, who aren't having children, or if they are having children, they're having one or two and that's it and they're done. What happens when all of these young people get old? If they get old, I suppose. I mean, that's a, that's a question. Will they get old? The life expectancy is for the first time in a long, long time, the first time in the modern era going down. This next generation is expected to not live as long as the previous generation on average. And you can thank a reduced enthusiasm for life in part. You can reduce uh, people's enthusiasm by telling them that they are what's wrong with the world just by virtue of them existing. If they're Americans, if they are white, if they are straight, if they are Christian, well, they are everything that's wrong with the world. Basically, there's a million ways in which they're being told, kill yourself or eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. So that's a contributing factor. Also, the economy, making it harder, making it necessary to work longer hours for less benefit. Also, not getting married and being lonely, not having children. And then you get old and then you get tired and there's no one to take care of you. There's no one to help you. There's no one to pick you up when you fall. That's a a very sad place to be. I, I will note, I will note that as a father of eight, my wife and I, we are often tired because there's a lot going on. We have all these mouths to feed and backs to clothe and faces to wipe and minds to instruct and hearts to encourage. 
We are often tired. But guess what? In 30 years, in 50 years, provided we're still alive, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise, we will be even more tired than we are now. But we will have eight children who, by God's grace, our prayer, our earnest hope and desire, will love the Lord, will love one another, will have wives and children of their own who will, will love us. They will be there to help us. And this is not a brag. This is not a boast. This is not, hey, look at how great we are. This is a challenge for us to rethink what we are orienting our own children who are increasingly being told, give up. This is a challenge that we need to be working against the kill yourself, give up, throw in the towel, you're everything that's wrong with the world messaging for the sake of. We love our kids. Well, then we've got to be giving them truth. We've got to be giving them hope. We have to be encouraging them to think on these things with regards to whatever is good, excellent, praiseworthy, noble, upright, anything that is those things. Think on those things. Meditate on those things. The idea that you have nursing homes where elderly people, people who are unable to care for themselves are put which are then closing. And and some of these stories, uh, I'll tell you what, some of these stories from the Billings Gazette, you have residents telling reporters, the nursing home didn't even inform my family that they were closing. So then you've got families, you know, children, grandchildren, who don't even get the chance to make preparations and don't even get me started on <sighs> when some people whose elderly parents are not able to take care of themselves put their elderly parents in nursing homes. It's just selfishness. It's just negligence. They don't come visit them. They don't take care of them. They don't look out for them. They don't honor their father and mother. Don't even get me started on that. But what happens What happens as we decreasingly see a value in human life, where you have nationalized healthcare in countries like Canada, responding to citizens who ask for, let's say, I, I think it was a, a stair lift, there was a woman in Canada who recently was corresponding with Canada's healthcare system saying, I need a stairlift and you guys are our insurance. I can't get up and down the stairs properly. And the response in part was to ask if she had considered assisted suicide and they could help her with that. They could help her with that, but they can't help her with a stairlift. It's everything that conservatives like myself were warning about for years with the government takeover of healthcare and health insurance. This will lead to encouraging residents, citizens, men and women, when they can no longer take care of themselves, to end their lives because that's cheaper. So here's what we have to get ready for. We have to get ahead of, not just react to, we've got to get ahead of it because this is what's coming, is a slew of arguments and art insofar as the left and progressives dominate the creation of art in our circumstance, our con- uh, context, unfortunately, and we need to do something about that also, by the way. But insofar as they do, you're going to see more TV shows, more movies, more books, more music, trying to rationalize and legitimate and spiritualize euthanasia. And people just calling it quit 
with the help of medical professionals. We'll give you this injection. You'll go to sleep and that'll be it. You won't be hurting anymore. You won't feel pain anymore. You won't feel anxiety anymore. You won't feel depression anymore. Never mind that the the larger picture of what we were telling you about the world and about God and about yourself and about one another, the mess that we made of your life is part of why you are feeling all that anxiety and that depression. Never mind that. We have a solution. And the solution is in the absence of pharmaceuticals and robots that can do the work, we'll just encourage you to take your own life. In other news, in other news, another headline here, also from the Billings Gazette, but this is just an AP CNN repost of theirs. Things to know today. Cinema leaves Democratic Party. Griner arrives in Texas. Coup plot in Germany. And we'll ignore the one about Germany. They probably do need a coup in Germany, given how that country has mismanaged its uh, energy policy with Russia and Ukraine and uh, the rationing of electricity and fuel and things like that. It was entirely predictable and it was entirely predicted that this was going to happen, but now it's winter and people are cold. Oh, and don't even get me started on the uh, refugees from the Muslim world brought into Germany and how the real problem, if you are a German and your female relatives and friends are being harassed by mobs of Syrian refugees, men, you know, the real problem is not that your wife or your mother or your sister or your girlfriend would be catcalled or assaulted, raped, murdered. That That's not the real problem. The real problem is that you might be a racist for pointing out that this has to do with, this is a direct result of an Islamic value system that they brought with them from the countries that they moved here from. Never mind that. Griner, WNBA athlete, women's basketball athlete, professional athlete, gets arrested in Russia for having drugs in her possession. It's this big PR coup for Russia as a way of embarrassing the United States. She's also a lesbian, and they are very much not sympathetic in Russia towards homosexuality, towards the LGBTQ plus Agenda, they actually recently passed some legislation saying that they are totally opposed to it. It has no quarter here for the Russian state, for the Russian Orthodox Church, and for Putin, and et cetera, et cetera. But Greiner was just recently traded for a prisoner, a uh, arms dealer called the Merchant of Death. And the Russians are making fun of us for this. They're mocking us here in the U.S. because we just made this trade. We just traded a WNBA uh, player who is uh, going into their country with drugs that they said, you know, you can't have those here. We don't allow that. We don't accept that. We will not tolerate that any more than we're going to tolerate your promotion of homosexuality in our country. We're not going to tolerate that. You're under arrest. Uh, Okay, we'll send you off to a prison camp now and a labor camp, forced labor camp. And oh, ho, ho, what good fortune. The United States of America, with Democrats at the helm, with Joe Biden at the helm, is willing to trade us an infamous 
arms dealer. You don't get the nickname Merchant of Death for no reason. They're willing to trade us <laughs> the Merchant of Death for this Brittany Griner gal. And what good fortune, what good luck to us. Some prominent persons in the U.S. government are pointing out uh, that they are opposed to this. This was a bad deal. This was a bad idea. Not because we just want Brittany Griner to finish out her days in a Russian penal colony. No, no. The symbolism and the messaging on trading the literal merchant of death for Brittany Griner is extraordinarily damaging to American national security and to the safety of individual Americans around the world. If you go abroad and any country that is hostile to you as an American, just because you're an American, can trump up charges, arrest you, detain you, and then hold you as a hostage to get whatever their most infamous uh, <laughs> bad actor uh, in American custody uh, is uh, back, well, then what, in essence, the Biden administration has just done is they've, they've, they've painted a target on the back of Americans abroad. You've incentivized, you've rewarded the kind of behavior you're going to get from these foreign regimes. Now, as an American, I would say, given the circumstances, I don't want to be in Russia in the first place anyways. I don't want to be in China in the first place anyways. I don't want to be in Venezuela in the first place anyways, even before this. But all the more, as a result of this, it's a bad idea and, and don't do it. Now, to be fair, I'm probably safer than Brittany Griner was because I am not a black woman who is also a lesbian. I'm, I'm nowhere near intersectional enough. So I, I would probably just get killed and not held for hostage. I don't think that I, I don't think uh, if I did go to Iran uh, or <laughs> Venezuela, I, I don't think the Biden administration would be trading anyone of value for me. I don't think they would try to get me back. Um, but then I wouldn't be in those countries in the first place anyways. And uh, oh, by the way, too, I mean, there, there were a number of people who were commenting on the footage of Brittany Griner and the Merchant of Death being exchanged on the tarmac, that the video feed that was released looked as though it was edited and it was cut very deliberately as Brittany Griner was going in for a handshake with the Merchant of Death. And she's on record as having said some very, very anti-American things. Uh, there is a question in my mind of why are you in Russia in the first place, right? Why are you over there? And then two, the optics, I mean, it's not for no reason you would cut that video to not show her shaking hands with this guy, if that's in fact what she did, go in for a handshake. Why in the world would you be shaking this guy's hand? Is it possible that the big idea was you go over there and get arrested and then we can give this guy back because they want him back? Is, is that the big idea? Is this part of redistributing American uh, prestige? abroad is I, what's what's the deal here right there's so much symbolism there's so much value 
in the optics here, either to be gained or to be lost. If you're Russia, you've just gained a propaganda uh, victory. If you're America, you only really uh, look at this as a win if you place an extraordinarily high value on a particular intersectional uh, character. And and really, too, I, I just I want to emphasize it's a sad thing to me that what is distasteful to the left and to the secularists is saying that each man, woman, and child has intrinsic value and worth based on having been made in God's image. They are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The premise, even on the most basic generic of terms, being that we have basic human dignity because we're made in God's image, that's offensive because now you're bringing religion into this and you're mixing church and state and, oh, don't do that. But what is not seen as distasteful to the same people who are so offended by Christianity being given prime of place in how we define what human rights are is ascribing, assigning more or less value to certain people based on their checking certain boxes. So then the question becomes, what happens when you cease to be the intersectional, um, you know, flavor of the month? You know, what, what happens to your value as a person if you're old news tomorrow? You know, for an extended time, feminism had a lot of value in terms of intersectionality. Oh, you're a woman? Well, then you're an oppressed minority. Oh, you're a feminist woman? You're an outspoken feminist woman? Well, you have intersectional value. And now it's not enough for you to be a woman, particularly when sometimes women are conservatives and articulate conservative values. It's not enough for you to even be a feminist because sometimes feminists critique homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism. They say, this is not a woman, actually. This is just a man dressed up as a woman. And actually, this is erasing even the concept of women as a distinct, special part of society and humanity. So it's not enough to be a feminist anymore. What's next? You know, at at what point does it cease to be enough to be a person of color or to be LGBTQ? What will the value of human life be? Or do we just run out? Do we just run out? And at a certain point, it becomes, on the one hand, Christians in particular in the West who say, every man, woman, and child is creating in God's image. And therefore, as an image bearer of the Almighty, we have to treat them with inherent dignity, worth. And yes, there are expectations as well. They don't just have an entitlement to praise reward, affirmation, honor, irrespective of life choices, what they're doing, character, etc. But there's a certain threshold for fair treatment, equal treatment under the law, respect just by virtue of them being image bearers. And you'll have that on the one hand. And on the other hand, I predict where this is going is nobody, nobody is seen as having value. There is no value on human life at all, and not even the pretense of it, except 
for the I, for the me. I have value and I take what I want and I get what I want and I destroy anybody who gets in the way. And I, increasingly, I think we're seeing more and more of that. And that is sad and it's disturbing on one level. It's unfortunate and it's concerning. And it does mean that there are dark days ahead and dark days upon us. But on the other hand, too, you can look at a silver lining here where the terms are more clearly spelled out that this is where people stand. This is the position that is taken. And as that is the case, it makes the choice clearer and it makes it easier to articulate why you should hold to the Christian view, not because Christians are so great, but because Christ is perfect. We submit to the Lordship of Christ on the one hand, or those who hate God love death. Now, another bit of happy news, and we won't spend too much time on this because I'm still not quite sure how much to make of it. I want to give it some more thought. But Kristen Cinema, Arizona senator, announced yesterday that she is leaving the Democratic Party and she is registering as an independent. And that's a good that's a good development, I believe. Uh, the Democrats are upset about it, so that's probably a clue. But but it's a good development. It's a positive development. I actually wish that all politicians were independents. I think that would be better. I think that would be preferable than the red versus blue dynamic. Edmund Burke, uh, you know, famous uh, Anglo-Irish statesman, philosopher, actually made some persuasive arguments in his writings uh, in favor of political parties. He thought that they had a stabilizing, actually a conserving uh, influence on a nation's direction, on society, on government. But nevertheless, I do wish that more of our politicians, more of our government officials, more of our ostensibly public servants would be independents, not Republican, not Democrat. But nevertheless, more on that, I'm sure, in the days and weeks ahead. Dovetailing off of, though, dovetailing off of this question of Christian nationalism that we've been talking about quite a lot. A lot of a lot of Christians in general are talking about Christian nationalism. Uh, some in terms that yeah, embrace the 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 uh, moniker, embrace the uh, idea, the concept. Others wanting to be clear that we, you know, identify the disingenuous nature of the label when it comes externally, as in the folks who are calling Christian nationalists, uh, you know, just anybody who is a Christian who also wants their worldview, their morality, their view of God and, and man to influence their political decisions, their arguments, the reasoning, uh, you know, they're, they're calling them Christian nationalists, but they really don't know that much about Christianity for one. And they really uh, don't have a good grasp of what nationalism is for that matter. But they're just sure that this person, that person, the other person, these are Christian nationalists. So you get some folks who are saying, ah, okay, that's disingenuous, but I still wouldn't embrace the term. And here's all the reasons why. And it's very concerning that we would be Christian nationalists. We don't want that. I don't know. You know, and, and what they're doing uh, for too many of them 
is they are internalizing, even as they point out the disingenuous nature of the label when it comes from outside of either the Christian, uh, you know, community, the the, the uh, church proper in the U.S. Uh, or outside of even the folks who would say, yeah, I'm a nationalist. I'm not a globalist. I'm an anti-globalist. I am a nationalist. They internalize it even as they point out that, yeah, this is a thing. And that's unfortunate. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's wise. Uh, actually, Al Mohler on his broadcast, one of his broadcasts this week, I think his Friday program, which I was listening to yesterday, said the term's not going anywhere. And we probably just need to get used to being called it. And actually, actually, he went further with a point I was making, and I really appreciated this. And you know, Al Mohler, you know, sometimes I, I think he's a little too establishment. He gives too much benefit of the doubt to the status quo among conservatives. But but I, I, I still like his contributions very often. He's got some some really great insight and a great delivery that's very calming and, and needful. He pointed out that a lot of denominations originally were called what they were as pejoratives. So the Methodists didn't start out calling themselves Methodist. That was a term critics of Methodists used to deride them. And then at a certain point, they said, okay, you know what? Fine. You want to call us Methodists? We will be Methodists. I guess that's what we are now. And they just embraced it. They shrugged and they said, okay, fine. We're Methodists. So be it. So also with Baptists, Baptists didn't call themselves Baptists. Others called them Baptists because they placed such a high importance on believers' baptism as opposed to infant baptism, for instance. And that was a distinctive that initially they were kind of mocked for. And then at a certain point, they, they shrugged and they said, oh, what's so bad about that, right? If one says, I am a Baptist, that does not mean that they therefore have to categorically, systematically, name by name, distance themselves and deride every single other person who has ever been a Baptist, or else, you know, they have what's coming to them. That, that's that's not reasonable, right? If I say I vote Republican, I do not need to list for you every single name of a Republican that I differ with significantly. I don't have to start listing off all the Republicans that I find regrettable or offensive or off the mark in order for it to be fine and sufficient for me to say, I am a Republican. You know, if you, if you want, if you want to know what I'm actually for and what it means, well then ask questions. But if you're going to rush to judgment and that's all you need to know about me is that I vote Republican. Although again, I wish more of us were independents and I myself am registered as an independent. Uh, you know, if you want to know more about who I am and what I'm about, ask questions. If you're going to rush to judgment, well, then why would I waste my time trying to cater to that? Because it's just like the Brittany Griner Merchant of Death trade. I'm going to get more of what I reward. I'm not going to incentivize that kind of behavior. You know, I, w- I want to be clear. I want to explain. I want to unpack. I want to be uh, known and and to be articulating what I'm for and against, what I'm about. But I really do. I, I, I think far too many of us spend an inordinate amount of time hand-wringing, navel-gazing, and it, it, we, we never get to actually make the argument for our actual views because we're so busy 
going through the death by a thousand qualifications of all of the people that we denounce and we deride. But on a positive note, you know, like here's a here's a a, a uh, important truth, not an opinion, not a position, not speculation, but an important truth that I just learned yesterday, and I'll share it with you, and then we'll talk a little bit more about Christian nationalism and Protestants going Catholic. Do you know what the most quoted passage of the Bible is within the Bible? And what I mean by this is the Bible will often feature references back because it wasn't all written over a weekend by some random guy. This was written over centuries and over thousands of years by many authors inspired by the Holy Spirit, God's servants in diverse places, diverse times, diverse circumstances, writing what God wanted them to write down. And so later on, right? Later on, you've got a memory of what came before, what was said before, what God said before, and then you have references back. So for instance, this passage in Exodus 34 five through nine, it comes up again and again. And I'll read it for you because this is Moses and God having a conversation about the 10 commandments and more specifically, the 10 commandments having been broken and destroyed in a fit of anger by Moses. This is to say that Moses is not a perfect guy. He sometimes has anger management issues, if you will. And yet God uses him anyways. Starting verse 5, Exodus 34, Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And this is so important that we note in context, this is right after the golden calf incident. God delivers the children of Israel out of bondage, 400 years of hard bondage and slavery to the Egyptians, delivers them out miraculously, doing signs and wonders for all the nations to see that he is the Lord God and that these are his people and he will keep his promises. And they complain and complain and complain and complain and complain and grumble and grumble and grumble and grumble. And they make an idol for themselves so that they can worship that instead. And so they can say, this is our God. And it's as disrespectful and irreverent and ungrateful as a people could possibly be. And yet, verse 1, Yahweh said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. So this is the intro to the context of the most quoted verse in the Bible. So this is the Bible 
quoting the Bible throughout again and again and again, hearkening back to what God says to Moses here in this context. That's very, very important. And what does God say about himself? He's saying, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious. What does Yahweh mean? I am that I am. I am that I am. So I am that I am a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. So you've got God describing himself as compassionate. Gary Brashears points out in the biblical training group that we went through lecture seven of last night, the first descriptor God gives of himself to Moses is compassionate. So this is the God who cares. He's not apathetic. He's not ambivalent. He's not indifferent. He doesn't shrug. This is the God who cares. Cast your cares on him for he cares for you. This is part of the reason why we're told to not be anxious for anything. So that's that's an important, important characteristic of God, attribute of God. We do well to remember as we delve into the idea of how Christians should vote, whether Christians should run for office, whether they should serve in law enforcement, whether they should serve in the military. If so, how? How Christians should talk about politics, whether Christians should talk about politics, when they talk about politics, what positions they should take. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. In the ESV, it says merciful, but it also, in some translations, reads compassionate, caring, but it's a particular kind of caring. It's an attentiveness. It's an intentionality. And in parallel, not one or the other, but both at the same time. He is merciful. He is also just. He is slow to anger, but that doesn't mean he never gets angry. He's not quick to anger like Moses, and it does Moses a whole lot of good to remember that God is slow to anger. And there's a transforming effect, even on Moses, to hear this, to be told this, to be reminded of this. This is very, very important. Now, moving on, before we run out of time here, there's an excellent piece I would recommend to you. I'm not going to read through it. I won't spend a lot of time on it. An excellent piece by Thomas F. Buher at The Tulip Driven Life, Christian Nationalism, Kinism, Acord, Adland, Wolf, and Roberts. And basically, you have here a fairly even-handed treatment of Christian nationalism, the case for Christian nationalism, specifically by Stephen Wolf published by Canon Press, in large part thanks to characters like Doug Wilson, drawing a lot of flack, a lot, a lot of flack, because this is upsetting. And again, with the hand-wringing, you have a lot of people who don't want this. They don't want this book. They don't want this character. They don't want this position being articulated or legitimated. They want it to go away because it's a troublemaker. This is going to make trouble for them, and they're not ready for this, and they don't want it, and they don't like it. Thomas F. Buher, I think, does a fine job. It was early in the morning when I read it this week, but I think what I caught, it was very even-handed, giving no quarter to kinists and white nationalists 
actually, but being very clear to say it is right, it is proper for us to have a conversation with someone like Stephen Wolf and the case for Christian nationalism is a work we should read and grapple with. We do well to grapple with it. Don't let the slanderers and the godless and the wicked try to lump everyone together so that they can call the whole lot of us racist. Don't let them do that. Don't play into that. Don't become a party to that. Don't become an accomplice to that. Don't do that. So again, I'll put that as a link in this podcast episode description. You can check it out. Read it for yourself. In a similar vein, there's a piece from earlier this week at adfontesjournal.com by Brad Littlejohn. Bradford is how I've seen him introduced many a time. I think that's a bit pretentious. That might be why he's shortening it to Brad Littlejohn to be a little bit more approachable. I don't know. I don't know the guy. He does seem a little bit pretentious. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. But he's got this piece. He wrote, Christian Nationalism or Christian Commonwealth, a call for clarity. And I'll put a link in. You can read it for yourself. It's longer than I have time in this episode to unpack in depth. Maybe in a future episode, we'll go back through it. I'm not going to commit to that, but maybe, 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 maybe if you're good. But he does ask some questions that I'm seeing crop up again and again in these kinds of pieces, these kinds of articles, these kinds of discussions. Can Christians be nationalists? So that's question number one. And then topic, major heading number two is Christian chosen nationism. And then number three is Christian magistracy. And then he talks about refusing the temptation of race consciousness. And then he makes a case for what he sees as being the Christian commonwealth. And we'll talk about that, that last little bit here. He says in the third to last paragraph, rebuilding a Christian politics will thus be a long, slow road at best. Recovering the idea of a Christian commonwealth will have to begin with recovering the idea of a moral commonwealth, which will have to begin by recovering the very idea of a commonwealth at all, a society knit together by common ends, and common objects of love. Now we'll stop that, that right there. Let's just stop right there and chew on that for a sec. The left wants that too, but this is why the folks who always want to cut a deal with Democrats and progressives and leftists and theological liberals in the church, this is why the folks who always want to cut a deal and they want to be very inclusive, they need to be warned that the common ends and common objects of love are incompatible. This is the point that J. Gresham Machen was trying to make in Christianity and liberalism. This is a false gospel. This is the point that I and others have been trying to make with regards to woke Christianity. This is not the gospel. This is a false gospel. Now, this is another thing that uh, Al Mohler spoke to helpfully in his program yesterday, he was doing Q&A, questions that had come in to the program. He was answering, reading, and then answering. And he was asked a question about heresy and heretics and what kinds of disagreements and debates and differences between Christians go into the 
heresy category. And so, for instance, for example, those who deny the Trinitarian God are heretics if they choose to deny it. Now, there's a differentiation here between those who maybe are believing something that's not true because they've not been taught, corrected, instructed in the faith. But then when they are corrected, they are correctable. They listen. They heed what accords with sound doctrine. On the one hand, you don't call those people heretics just because they might be espousing something that is heretical that they heard and they didn't know any better. You don't call them a heretic unless it's a stubborn choice. When they say, no, 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 I refuse to hear reason. This is what it is. So I will say with regards to wokeism and liberal theology, progressive theology, it is a false gospel, and that doesn't necessarily mean that those who have been taken in, taken captive by some of the vain and human philosophy that goes into progressive Christianity, liberal theology, it's not to say that they're all false brothers, they're all false Christians, they're all heretics, but it is to say, if there's a stubborn willfulness, they might be, they really, really might be. And this is where it's a losing proposition to ask how high whenever those folks throw a term at conservative theologically, conservative politically, conservative socially, conservative fiscally Christians, when they throw stones rhetorically and pejoratives and labels that are disingenuous and not clear and not well-defined, it's a losing proposition to ask how high when they say jump. Because at the end of the day, they actually also do want this commonwealth you're talking about, but they believe in a false gospel. And if they refuse to be reasoned with when you go to the scriptures and you say, ah, but this is, but it, it is written, right? It, it, it is written. If they refuse to be reasoned with, they might be heretics because heresy speaks to, as Al Mohler pointed out, choice. If it's a willful, stubborn choice to believe a falsehood, that is contrary to the clear teaching of scripture, well, then you are the stiff-necked people that Moses talks about the children of Israel being coming out of Egypt. It is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. If that idea, if that characterization offends you, I would ask why. I, I really would. Why would that characterization offend you? But the notion of conservative Christians being called ugly names again and again, that, well, I don't know. You know, it's, it's complicated. There's nuance. Who can say? Yeah, they, these are actually gospel issues. They, they are actually gospel issues. I do agree. I don't know if I agree with so much of Little John's piece here as I should like to, but I, I do agree that there's an order of operations but I think actually, this is part of why we do need to have a conversation with the case for Christian nationalism. You know, so long as we don't have the Richard Spencer types, or unfortunately, Kanye West saying, oh yeah, I love Hitler. Hitler did some great things. The Nazis did some great things. So long as we're not dealing with people who are just being ugly old racists, actually, like not reading between the lines, but like openly prominently, proudly 
flaunting their wickedness, their folly. We need to have a conversation so that we can conceive of even the philosophical framework that would be necessary to have a Christian commonwealth. If we're not able to ever have that conversation, because we're always busy, preoccupied with a long list of people we are distancing ourselves from for fear of we ourselves being canceled, marginalized, dismissed, written off. Well, then we're going to get more of what we've been getting because we've been playing that game for quite a long time as it is. Lastly, before I completely, completely run out of time, let's talk about this video I watched yesterday. Thanks to J.P. Chavez. Actually, thanks to J.P. for the piece by Bradford Little John at Ad Fontes. Uh, thanks to Bobby McPherson for sharing the tulip-driven life, Thomas F. Boer piece. But thanks again to J.P. Chavez for this video that took up quite a lot of my attention yesterday when I was not programming. And it's it's a long video, and I paused every now and then talking back and forth with JP about what went into this or what to make of it. We were messaging back and forth and had, I think, a, a really good conversation about it. But the title of the video is Cameron Bertuzzi Converts to Catholicism. Here's how it happened. And the channel on YouTube is Pints with Aquinas. Great name. Very cool. Very original. The host of that channel is uh, an Aussie. He's got a great Australian accent. Really enjoy that. But Matt Fred is his name. He and Bertuzzi go to Rome and they have this back and forth conversation on a rooftop. I'm struck by Cameron Bertuzzi of Capturing Christianity. That's his outlet. That's his organization, his uh, apologetics ministry. And how he starts off in just a very, very wishy-washy way, explaining how he decided that he thinks he needs to convert to Catholicism, how he needs to join the Roman Catholic Church. The only thing that was really, really clear in all of that explanation was that as a photographer, he appreciates the beauty of Roman Catholic architecture and art. It's objectively more beautiful, more skillfully crafted and produced and presented and preserved than Protestant architecture, Protestant art, Protestant music. And then from there, it was a lot of just very double-minded, very, on the one hand, on the other hand, tortured, agonizing, back and forth about, I asked my Protestant friends, why shouldn't I become a Roman Catholic? They told me to look at the papacy. I considered this argument and that argument. And then he's not really, you know, for, for being someone who has it as his goal to capture Christianity and then, as he says, to present a kind of mere Christianity overview of theology and philosophy, he doesn't seem to have a good, firm grasp of many of the doctrinal issues that differentiate 
Protestantism from Catholicism. And yet, maybe because he has this very mere Christianity, very superficial, non-denominational approach, he's overawed by the trappings and the grandeur of Rome. He's taken in by that. He's, ta- he's, he's captivated by it. I mean, really, he's captivated by the vain and human philosophy of the Roman Catholic Church. He's captivated by the art. And this is not just Roman Catholicism that is capable of doing that. Many other institutions make intentional use of art and architecture. This is part of the reason why I think conservative Protestant Christians need to invest more time and attention and resource into creating good art because it is captivating, because there is something to beauty that is not redundant as far as truth is concerned. It's not redundant as far as goodness is concerned. It's distinct from and yet related in a transcendental and universal way. But I'm listening to this and I'm, I'm watching it and I'm trying to just take in what the argument is what the draw is. And the best I could come up with was from Cameron Bertuzzi, the architecture is better. Their art is better. And there are so many rules. And at first that scared me, he says. At first that was concerning because I like my freedom. I like to be able to think what I want, believe what I want, do what I want. But Catholics have a lot of rules. But then he says too, he was never sold on sola scriptura. It just never really was convincing and that's when the light bulb went on for me. That's when it clicked on, as I thought, ah, yes, okay. The idea of going to Christ as your intercessor, that's hard. What you might want to do instead is pray to a saint or go to your local parish priest and have him absolve you after you confess. Reading theology, studying, and I'm reading Aquinas for that matter. I'm not a Catholic, not in the Roman sense. I don't regard the supremacy of Rome as more than a statement of will and ambition and conceit and vanity, and thus I am more offended by it than I am overawed by it. But rather than having to do all this hard work, reading Chesterton, reading Lewis, reading Aquinas, reading Augustine for yourself, grappling with Luther, grappling with Calvin, what they said is it true? Searching the scriptures, weighing and measuring, going to God as your savior. There is a draw for some people to just having someone tell them what to do. Just just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to believe. I don't know. I don't know what to believe. Just tell me what to think. I don't know what to think. Just tell me how to feel. I don't know how to feel. And I, I'll say this. I'll say this is one of the big draws that the left has is that they comprehensively do. Even though they purport to be about freedom, they're actually for a very, very narrow range of freedoms, primarily to do with gender and sexuality, not commenting on others, not commenting on other people's gender and sexuality in any way that would institute a sexual ethic, sexual morals, which by extension mean that Whatever is outside of those sexual morals is sexually immoral. No, no. No, you can't comment on other people's gender and sexuality in relation to what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. But you can do whatever you want there. And then otherwise, 
you must have permission or you must obey the mandates. And that is very tempting for people who get tired of study, contemplation, taking responsibility, taking initiative, taking lumps for that matter. And so some are drawn to the left, I think also drawn to the Roman Catholic Church for very similar reasons, because it's like hitting the easy button. Just do it for me. Just figure this out for me. And it is a failure of imagination that we would not regard Christ as either A, doing that sufficiently for us to be our object of faith, the strong tower into which the righteous run and are safe, or equipping us, instructing us sufficiently in his word to do that. Another thing I'll note and I'll draw out for your attention in Cameron Bertuzzi's interview, he talks about going through a really dry spell for some time spiritually, not reading his Bible, not praying. He also talks about his ministry, his channel, falling on hard times financially, there being a shortfall, $3,000 a month, their expenses versus what they had coming in and donations, and how that also was really, really weighing on him. And then this comes along, and he doesn't see these as connected, or at least he doesn't talk about them as connected. I do see them as connected. It seems to me as though he grew weary in doing what is good, and now he's tapping out, and now he says, please, Rome, please let me bask in your wealth, in your order, because I'm tired, rather than reckoning with what's going on that you are not reading your Bible, you're not praying, you're not meditating on God's word. Let me look for a new shiny object to kick the can down the road in some sense, if you're not dealing with the heart of the matter. It sounds like a hard issue that you are covering up. And to quote William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, the fault lies not with our stars, dear Brutus, but with us, but in ourselves that we are underlings. Might you become master of your fate through choice, no matter what the stars say. And here, I'll leave you with this thought. I'll leave you with something to ponder. You know, consider the Judas character in the Matrix movie, the original, who is prepared to betray the crew of the Nebuchadnezzar to the machines. So he's out for this imaginary steak dinner with Agent Smith, played by Hugo Weaving, masterfully, by the way. And what he wants as a reward, his 30 pieces of silver for betraying Morpheus and the crew, what he wants is to not remember the real world. He wants to be fully integrated back into the matrix. It's all just electrical signals and chemistry. What does it matter? Who cares? I don't, I don't want to remember anything. I want to be rich. I want to be famous. That's what I want. And that can creep in. That can creep in. But it is not where hope is found. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. The object of our faith has to be Christ. We have to look to the character of God first and foremost. And we have to look to his word. That has to be our only 
infallible authority for life and practice and doctrine. Let God be true and every man a liar. Do that, and I think you actually can rebuild a common understanding of right and wrong among Christians. But we can't put the cart before the horse. We can't have that common understanding of right and wrong of law unless we have a common devotion to the lawgiver. I'll point out as well, Rome would never have invented the United States of America. Muhammad would never have invented the United States of America. Buddha would never have invented the United States of America. Confucius, Marx, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, we see what they built, a distinctly Protestant Christian view of God and we ourselves and the world. That is what invented the United States of America or led to, enabled the conceptualizing of the United States of America. Maybe our days are numbered as a people. I'm not sure. But whether they are or they aren't, we look to God. We remember his character. We implore him. We ask him, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. In Christ, we see the ultimate fulfillment of that ask, that prayer, that request. So in Christ, we see the other bookend of God's proclamation about himself, his self-identification. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's who our God is. We do well to remember and to meditate on it and to live in light of it, since God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I got to run, though. That's all the time I've got for this episode. Let me know what you think in the comments. If you haven't yet, hit subscribe. Share this with someone you know. But as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.